Hey, what's up, people? This is Dan. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in and checking out Kinky Ideas. This is my third podcast I'm releasing. And uh, about a week ago, I had a really interesting conversation, or at least I found it pretty interesting, uh, chat with a friend of mine uh, that I met recently. And we kind of started talking a little bit about our lives, and uh, you know, it, it came out pretty quickly that he's in recovery. Uh, he asked that to him as Z Cody Love in this podcast because he's in uh, NA and in the spirit of NA he'd like to keep his his uh, name anonymous so um, certainly want to respect that but just a really really good guy and a really just beautiful soul and um, you know kind of a kind of a crazy story uh, to you know talk to a pretty regular middle class kid from the suburbs that goes from at a pretty young age to smoking crack and everything in between and um, so you know uh, there's certainly lessons in here that I found were applicable to me even though I've never been kind of in the in the depths of despair that he endured um, but a really really good guy and a, and a pretty fascinating story and I'm just really happy for him um, that he's finding some some serenity and some peace in his life now and finding a way to help other people and it's a beautiful thing because he's a, a really good guy and a beautiful person so anyways i hope you get something out of it and uh, enjoy it and as usual let me know your thoughts um, anything i can improve on which i'm sure there's plenty <laughs> um, but let me know what you think and and please share away um, i don't know how these things spread or or if they're valuable to other people how you know how they keep moving but I hope you find something of value in here, and uh, let me know what you think. Share with your friends, and enjoy. Thanks so much. Take care. The first you and I talked, we were grappling, right? Yeah. And I think you probably gave me some of the details then, but we were in a funny context. Yeah. And so I, I, I was thinking like about the conversations we've had since then. And so, like, what's your back? What's my background? Well, um, you mean in the context of like why am I interested in addiction and recovery and all this? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I uh, I wasn't ever in like a, in a, you know, bottom of the barrel kind of situation at all. I mean, I've got tons of addiction in my family line. My dad is, um, you know, he's, I mean, he's an alcoholic. He's been. Did the rehab thing a few different times. He, he was, uh, I guess, so he never drank from the time I was like three years old until I was about 20. Okay. So he, he got dried out when he was like 33. Okay. And, um, you know, so for all intents and purposes, my childhood was, uh, was uh, you know, hey, dad's a sober guy, small business owner active civically and you know little local government and business association type stuff you know just whatever and then but I mean I always heard growing up you know when when your dad used to drink and dad was an alcoholic and stuff and I mean I knew it his dad died when he was 47 digging a car out of the snow and had a heart attack and it was like well yeah he smoked a lot of cigarettes and drank a lot of whiskey and that's just how it was you know uh, my mom's dad I never met him but I knew he was a Soak too, and I mean, just it's in the bloodline, you know. Yeah. But anyways, 
So he stopped drinking, and then when I was 20, I was at college, and my mom calls up. Uh, I was down at Gustavus, and my mom called up, and she's like, your dad's in, in, uh, in jail for DWI. And I was like, what? Dad doesn't even drink, you know? Well, I guess he started, you know, or whatever. So, but, I mean, my background, I mean, knowing all that, I started drinking when I was, like, 13 or 14, you know? It was just, like, um, me and my friends, I mean, I can remember the first time I we had a liquor cabinet at home, even though my dad didn't drink, but it was like, you know, some ancient peppermint schnapps that somebody probably put in the hot cocoa or something when grandma came over, you know, who knows, but like a old rancid bottle of that and some old vodka. <clears throat> and I remember my buddies, you know, two of my best buddies that are still my best buddies to this day. It was like, last weekend, we snuck a couple beers out of KJ's parents' fridge, and oh, it was the best, you know, and so I go grab a thermos and swipe some peppermint schnapps and vodka and go over there, you know, we're like in eighth grade, I think, parents go to bed, takes about probably two shots or something at that age, and just act silly all night, and it was like, I'm into this, this is, this is what I'm into, and we're going to, we're going to take to this, this is, we're going to start doing this at a high level pretty early and often. And so then it was just that way, all of high school, all of college, all of my 20s, you know, whatever. And so <clears throat> when I was like 33, um, I don't know why, I'm not a, a particularly religious guy, but I was like, well, Jesus was 33 when he died. And I started thinking about it, and I was like, my dad was 33 when he got sober, and I've been doing this for just about 20 years, pretty gung-ho the whole time. I think I'm just going to take a year off. Just Why not? You know, just, I mean, because of what you're into now, you know, like just setting goals. And I was getting really more into that with my work life and stuff and my fitness and just run some marathons and all this different stuff. So I was like, well, I'm just going to take a year off. I mean, what, what's the worst that could happen at the end of a year? You can certainly go back if you're like, oh, that was way better, you know. And so within, you know, probably, I mean, when I first stopped, I just started smashing on ice cream every night. It was like the part of the ritual of sitting down watching TV with my wife or whatever. It was like, well, I got to have something to do. So ate a lot of ice cream, then kind of that tapered off after a couple months. But within like a couple months, it was like, I don't, you know, I don't want to say never, never, because it was like, well, maybe we go to wine country and it's been, you know, and I'm out on a beach and I don't have to drive and the kids aren't, or you know, whatever, you know, but I was like, I just, things are good. I don't really see why I would go back. You know, it was like, I felt like I feel great physically all the time. There's all this mental clarity. I'm not, um, I'm less emotionally volatile, you know. <clears throat> just, I mean, you can imagine, just it feels like epiphany after epiphany. Like, wow, I got all this long-term vision. And just my life definitely improved a lot. So then um, was completely sober, didn't, you know, and meanwhile, <clears throat> so I, like I said, I'd started uh, drinking at 13, 14 years old, whatever. I mean, I basically started smoking pot at the same time, and um, I always liked that too. There was times where I'd be off and on on that, but I guess alcohol was probably always more the drug of choice, but I, I liked pot plenty too. I mean, you know, it's just, and still do. So that was the thing. So then I went like 18 months completely sober. And then for whatever reason, I don't know if I was listening to too much Rogan or just um, 
you know, thinking I was, I had it all figured out or whatever. I get, I mean, part of it was I started thinking like, thinking back on all, any bad time I had smoking pot. Cause there was times where it'd be like wasted and then smoke pot and throw up and be like, Oh, pot's terrible. Look at what happens to you when you smoke pot or whatever. And I was like, well, yeah, I smoked pot, but I had like 12 whiskeys beforehand. You know, pot just makes you more aware of the way your body actually feels. And when it's full of poison, it's like, get it out, you know? So in, in my mind, again, this is all just whatever in my mind, I decide uh, pot wasn't the problem, you know, my, maybe alcohol was a problem or whatever, just pot isn't that big of a deal. And so I um, made the decision after like 18 months completely sober, I was like, I'm going to give that a whirl again. And I thought about it a lot. It wasn't like one day it was just in front of me and I was like, oh, I got to do it. It wasn't, my decision making really isn't like that. It's not that impulsive. So I decided, let's give that a whirl again, and it was fantastic, and I loved it, And but I just, it was slow, I, you know, I was at a buddy's house, it's not like I went and got some and then just took right back to it, but just, it slowly started to come back in to the point where it got to be more regular, and then I would maybe taper myself off or go like, I probably shouldn't do this, and for me, like, pot was never, um, you know, people... A big battle for me with pot was with my wife, you know, and I mean, I, she didn't know that I started doing it again. She's hated it since I was, since we were younger. We started dating in college, and it's funny, the other day on Valentine's Day, she showed me a letter that she wrote to her friend when we lived in Japan after college. We went to um, Japan and taught English for a year, mm-hmm. and it was like, living with Dan is just so great. Like, it's just, it's so nice having... Your man next to you, like when you come home from work, and this is like 23 year old dork talk, obviously. But then it was like, I just wonder when we get home if he'll get back to his old hobbies, and then like in parentheses, like smoking weed. So it was like, that's what I was into in college, and she hated it from the jump, you know. But like, anyways, to her, weed was always like, I was just like smackhead, you know. It was like, honey, I hate to tell you this, but I smoked weed this weekend and went, ran a half marathon, or you know, like it just wasn't that way for me you know weeds just whatever and I loved it and I still love it but what came to a conclusion after you know puffing weed again for like 18 months was it was like I just the behavior is starting to get to the point where I was like reading this book on the alcoholic's brain and I was looking at it I was going this is a different substance but the same all the same mindset stuff applies you know I mean I'm don't lie to anybody the only person I lied to was my wife about smoking pot and in my mind like I would smoke pot go home it wasn't like I had to but I'd do my household stuff fold laundry put kids to bed whatever and I just it was fine and and the reality was nobody ever knew and I'm not saying that's a good thing but in my mind at least I justified it as how can you tell me this is a problem if you didn't even know about it when obviously the real problem is when she found out about it, you know, she's, she's not super thrilled about that, obviously. So, you know, I get it. And I mean, so I guess now it's uh, December 2nd was the last time I smoked pot. And I just came home and, you know, had a conversation with her. I was like, I get it. Like, I just, uh, you know, what you have to realize as my woman is that I can't stop because you want me to stop. Like, that's not ever going to work. Just like white knuckling it. You know, if it, it has to be something that switches in my brain and makes me not. The unfortunate part is, I, I, like, people are like, do you, do you wish, uh, what am I trying to say here, like, 
you wish you could smoke pot. And it's like, well, I don't, I wish I was different. I wish I had a brain that could just say whatever, a few weeks, few months, whatever. Because I tried to rationalize it with her and to be like, because she likes to have a beer, a glass of wine and, you know, um, you'd be like, honey, what could possibly be wrong with Saturday night? We put all the kids to bed. You pour your glass of red wine. I go to the garage and puff a one and we sit down and watch Netflix together. Like, how, how is that bad? And I'll, I still believe that, but it never, it never worked. You know, I just, it, I could tell that, you know, she's this, you know, rigid, like, I mean, she just saw it as me, like I said, you know, in her mind, puffing weed, and I, this is not blaming anything on my wife, like, my problems, I'm smart enough now to realize that they're all internal. They have nothing to do with the outside world. So, the uh, just you know, it it, do, it didn't. She didn't see it that way, you know. And so that there was never, you know, I was trying to like convince her, like just give me a fair shot at this, and you know. But I ultimately just came to realize like this is more hassle than it's worth. I wish that I could be a, just a type of guy that it's like, hey, we're going skiing in Colorado, and I puff a little weed in Colorado, and it's great, and I come home and forget about it again. But for me, I think I'm just like a binary thinker. Something's allowed to be allowed as much as I want and if it isn't then it's got to be out you know and I'm probably no different than most addicts in that way but so anyway so that's my quick background but. cool cool and then the podcast is an offshoot of that learning to well I guess what I I realized pretty quickly in deciding to be to live as a sober person is that I have a considerable amount of curiosity and mental energy and um, you know desire to to channel this energy into something more productive and creative than just either self-destruction or um, there's a lot of just I don't know what the exact term was or is for it I was thinking about it I'm kind of interested in Teddy Roosevelt and my my knowledge of him is very surfacey but I was reading some book on it, and I don't remember the exact quote, but it was something of his was basically just about don't get too bogged down in all your reading. you got to be a person of action, you know, just like just sitting there and intellectually masturbating about how smart I am or reading all the time or just getting high and thinking about things but not actually doing anything. So it was like, what, how do I channel this into something that could possibly help some other people? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for that. And that, that lets me feel connected to you as a person and to kind of know um, who I'm talking to and whether or not we speak the same language and it sounds like we do. So yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah, right on. Thanks. So, Thanks. Um, again, same, same story. When we're, we have a two-minute conversation as we're trying to choke each other out at jiu-jitsu, and, <laughs> and I remember the conversation, you know, how it started. We were talking about reason about on it and then like alpha brain and you said do you do that or have you ever tried that and I probably made some self-indulgent comment about like oh it's better for me if I just don't do stuff like that or something but you were like hey I get it I'm in recovery and yeah and then we went from there so that's right tell me your story sure so um <clears throat> well, I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you and share my story because uh, I mean my story is like every other addict that I've ever met. Um, it starts out as one thing and turns into another thing. 
Okay. And um, it's like different paths to the same destination. Okay. Me. And I know that as an addict, uh, in my own experience, the destination for me is either uh, death or recovery. Right. And I had um, the wiring from the start. And so I, I, I never really needed to question whether or not I was an addict. Okay. Uh, because kid, I had a lot of these <clears throat> early warning signs. Okay. I mean, not only... Tell us a little bit about background first. So, sure. like, what's your story, you know? Sure. Household and... So, not only genetically, like, I, I was raised in an alcoholic home, my dad and my mom. And it was the kind of situation where I had all my needs met. Uh, food, water, clothing, shelter. Okay. Um, but there was a lot of chaos. Okay. And there was a lot of stuff that, as a child, looking back uh, through an adult lens, nothing ever was discussed. Hmm. Um, we, I have two biological sisters. Uh, my parents were married until I was nine. And we, we all kind of recollect in the same way that uh, it just seemed like there was always something Hmm. Um, but we didn't know what it was. And it wasn't like this feeling that like something horrible was happening, um, but I learned pretty quickly uh, as a kid um, that when I would go to my friends' houses, there was something different, and I didn't know what it was. Hmm. And you know what I've come to really understand and accept and embrace in my recovery My parents are addicts, you know, right. and so part of that territory is, you know, unusual behavior. There's a lot of, a lot of partying, um, and uh, again, I'll stress that I felt loved, you know, as a kid. I, I didn't feel neglected, um, but it was kind of an anything goes scenario. My, my folks were part of the hippie movement, and I've got some vivid memories of just being in these uh, fields in, um, outside of Kansas City. Uh, my dad was in a blues band, and they'd have these speakers set up, running on generators. They'd be playing blues music, you know, into the, in, all night into the morning. Sure. And drinking and partying and lot of what I would at another point in my life think was like a lot of fun. Yeah, of course. You know, like, well, oh that's God. the whole thing is it's fun. <laughs> uh, but as a kid, you know, like I've done quite a bit of therapy as a part of my recovery. It's like there wasn't, um, there weren't a lot of boundaries and there wasn't a lot of supervision and, you know, brought into the world of partying young. Right. And, um, you know, some of the insanity that comes with that. And so, <clears throat> I mean, when, when it comes to my background in a conversation about addiction, that's kind of the story. Sure. Uh, if somebody else asked me my background, I might tell it a different way. But in the context of addiction, I think that's what needs to be said because 
really did wire me, mm-hmm. and it taught me what uh, what normal was in in my family, and I had right. to learn the hard way that that's not normal for all families. Right. And um, and so to kind of dive in a little bit with my story, um, you know, I was addicted to everything. I mean, obsessive about everything as a kid. The same wiring that I eventually smoked crack with, I collected baseball cards with. Mm-hmm. I collected and learned about dinosaurs with, and Legos, and G.I. Joes, right, and comic books, and Mad Magazine. Mm-hmm. Anything that I could get my hands on <clears throat> that would change the way that I was feeling, mm-hmm. um, I would do it to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and baseball cards wouldn't have killed me, right? But that same wiring there that eventually in my late 20s brought me to the stuff that would kill me, Right. exact same. Can I interrupt for a second and ask you, that just rang a bell for me when you said that would change the way I was feeling. Mm -hmm. Because recently when I made the decision to, like, right away after December 2nd when I My dad and I talk pretty openly about this kind of stuff. I mean, he's in recovery right now. He's had a few recent relapses when you know my mom is not in great health and has had strokes. And I think he basically sees his life now as like this caregiver as a relatively young, you know, late 60s, should be retired and hitting the road and whatever. But he, he and I were talking just a couple months ago about what is... You know, what is it about to feel the need to, you know, drink or smoke or whatever your substance is? And he said, well, I guess if I've learned anything over basically, you know, probably 50 years of trying to not be an addict, it's like you have to learn to not feel a need to change the way you feel right at that moment. So from the, you know, this young age that you're talking about, how do, like, what were you, you know, you said you kind of knew things weren't normal, but as a eight-year-old collecting comic books or something, I mean, how did you, how did you feel at that time that you felt you needed to change the way you felt? So, I didn't, I didn't know that's what I was doing, um, but I knew the result that I was going for. And a good example of it is, um, when I was growing up, I listened to tapes, maybe you did too. Mm-hmm. And there would be a part in a song that I would really like. And, I mean, a a good song has those parts, you know, a crescendo or like a place where, um, you know, Bon Jovi is a a tape that stands out to me. Um, You know, it's it's when his voice would do a certain thing and it would light me up a little bit. Right. Okay. Well, I would rewind it and I would listen to that place over and over and over again until it made the tape. Mm-hmm. And you could take the tape out and you could look and you could see that point in the tape mm-hmm. because it had been rewound and played and rewound and played just in that little right. spot so much um, that it literally wore out the, the little ribbon. And, um, and so I didn't process it like an adult would. You know, today I know that, you know, when I, when I have the urge to, a drink or a drug, 
uh, you know, there's something in me that I'm either uh, not wanting to feel or denying it's there, don't want to look at, don't want to deal with. But as a kid, I didn't have that thought process. Sure. And so <clears throat> it just felt like who I was. Um, I realized that I was a little different, a little more obsessive about things. Maybe my friends who, you know, didn't turn out to be addicted. Um, but to answer your question, th there wasn't this straightforward, like, I don't like what I'm feeling, sure. what can I do? Um, you know, instead it was an escape. You know, I, uh, I was also a completist. And so if I read one book by an author, I'd feel... Um, really compelled to read everything they'd ever written and to want to do things a little differently. And so, you know, if I was a kid 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been reading Harry Potter, but I would have been reading some other series that was a little like Harry Potter, but different. Right. Because I didn't want to do what everyone else was doing, mm -hmm. but I also kind of wanted to do what everyone else was doing mm -hmm. at the same time. And so <clears throat> then, um, normal to um, party and to drink and to do all that, even though I wasn't doing it myself. That was a part of my environment. And so when the time came to have my first drink, um, it didn't feel like this big, crazy jump thing. Yeah. Um, it felt like I would do this eventually, and I guess today is the day. How old were you? Uh, I was 11. Circumstances again, it's like looking back, it's super textbook. Uh, my friend, um, my best friend at the time, uh, got a bottle, a brand new bottle of Bacardi Lemon. Nice. And we went down to the park and we passed it back and forth uh, until we were absolutely shit faced and then biked around for a little bit. with people, I kept thinking in my head, I'm drunk, I'm drunk, and I just kept saying that in my head, uh, and um, nobody seemed to notice, and that's actually what I liked more than anything, mm -hmm. is that I was in one state, and nobody knew, mm -hmm. and so then the next day I went back to the park with a bottle of water, and I poured it in the empty bottle that we threw in the weeds. Mm. Again, because I wanted that feeling back. Mm. Um, and so <clears throat> when I look back at like little me at that point, um, it makes me sad. And because again, like I didn't realize how um, unusual that what was to go back and pretend to drink, wanting it instantly the next day to happen again. And so then I, um, because of my age, I was 11, I didn't have easy access to alcohol, and I was busy as a kid in sports and stuff, um, and my other obsessions. 
So I, um, I didn't drink again for probably six months. Mm. I thought about it a lot. Um, I really wanted to plan like the ultimate drinking experience where it would be in this fort back in the woods and these people would be there and we'd have access to you know these kinds of drinks and you know fun stuff would happen and I mean it, uh, I loved the, the thought of like creating this experience hmm. around it and so then I started smoking pot in junior high and actually got caught in seventh grade with some pot, and uh, the principal walked in when I was showing it off to a friend of mine, and you know, cops came, and there's this big ordeal, and that really was a warning sign to my parents that I might have been on the wrong path, mm-hmm. they would have put it. And so then um, they basically cut me off from that group of friends as much as they could, uh, forced me to wear different clothes, and like a skater and growing my hair along, they cut off all my hair, mm. made me get pants that fit. I was so angry about that because, again, I wanted to be different. Um, and I, at that age, with all the hormones and the adolescent, um, you know, the, the way that we break away from our family and establish. You know, there was all that. Um, I I was so resentful. I mean, just angry about it. And um, but so it actually was a really great thing because my uh, part of my the conditions of my not getting expelled were that I needed to go to drug classes. Mm-hmm. Part of one of the drug classes was to go to AA. And so at 12, I fell in with a group of young people in AA. And even though I wasn't using all the time, my life wasn't out of control, um, I certainly related to how these people thought. That they were the only people in the world that had made sense to me up to that point. Mm. Um, and they were sober. So they had were these other kids or adults too? They were young people, like 17 or 18, okay. 19, 20, and I loved it. I'm hanging out with these older kids, smoking cigarettes, <laughs> chewing tobacco, riding around in their car, listening to NWA, Nice. I mean, Ice Cube, it was the best. And what I know now is that really what I want and what I've always wanted is to belong. Sure. Community. Yeah, tribe. Yep. And I found that in them. Um, and I think my parents kind of, um, you know, saw it as a slight victory where everybody wins. I'm hanging out with people that maybe they didn't quite approve of, but we're doing sober things, and so it's a, sure. kind of a win. And so then as I uh, aged and that group kind of disintegrated, in recovery, you know, people go back out using or people move away. Um, I just migrated back into normal friendships with people, 
not based on recovery. Um, I was probably in high school and, um, you know, didn't drink or smoke anything for the, I mean, for the rest of junior high and all through high school. Um, but on the side, obsessed with rugby, obsessed with lifting weights, um, obsessed with getting good grades, overachieving, obsessed with keeping my space clean, right? Um, obsessed with figuring out girls, you know, like, I, I would just think about, like, so, so how does it work? Like, how do you get a girlfriend? How do you, and then I would obsess about it and I'd watch how other people do it and, you know, be very, very curious the whole time, but also feeling this pressure, like, that I had to kind of get this shit figured out. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in that, again, I was moving away from feeling like I belonged into this place where even in a crowd of my peers at school I would feel isolated or different or somehow disconnected mm. and so you know not consciously for that reason um, I got in with the party scene that's where the fun was that's where people were hugging each other and you know staying up late and doing crazy things and having things to talk about and so my last couple years of high school I drank and smoked pot and Mm -hmm. I felt connected to other people, and I mean that kind of brings me up into my adulthood. Um, did you go to school, or did you go to college after high school? I did, yeah. Yeah, so keep going. Yeah, absolutely. So then, um, you know, I, I didn't, it, it didn't resonate real consciously with me that you know, um, I knew that I was, as I aged, I was getting more and more into this mentality of uh, if a little's good, a lot's probably better. Of course. And, um, and also, kind of, by the time I went to college, I mean, I picked my college because it was a party school, mm. UW Lacrosse hardiest school that I got into, and so I signed up, and by the time I got there, it was a ritual for me to smoke pot every single night, and to smoke it at this particular tree, mm. and to do that, I had to, like, like you mentioned, live a bit of a double life, because I was, um, you know, straight A student, but I also had to get to that tree every night. Mm -hmm. And I had a roommate who I didn't want to know. Mm. And um, I had a group of friends that I didn't want to know. Isn't that, sorry to interrupt, but isn't that sort of like the, um, <clears throat> the gift and the curse of pot? Is that you can, it like, you know, alcohol is obvious, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're wasted, it's pretty obvious to everybody, but... I mean, there are people that if they're stoned, they, you know, wear it on their sleeve. But there's others that it's like, it, it, it can be great because it doesn't impede all your functioning and wreck every organ in your body. And, you know, you can sort of do your thing without people knowing. But it's a curse, too, because then you're like, well, why would I be sober? Why wouldn't I be stoned if I could do all my shit stoned? I mean, that's, that's a question that I've asked myself. 
I my experience has been that I stay about the same when I'm smoking pot every day. I don't reach new heights. Okay. Yeah. And even though I'm getting all my stuff done, right. I'm not having new dreams. You're sort of treading water. Yep. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's that's what has become really clear on that because I mean. Compared to what else I've done and what other people have done, pot is like a little, it's a little shrub, mm-hmm. you know, and, but I know that for me, I'll, I'll, I'll segue away from my story and then come back, but for me, like, it's, it's, it's not the drugs and the alcohol, it's how I think. As they say in my program, you know, drugs and alcohol are a symptom of a greater condition. That condition is called addiction. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned is that anything can make my life unmanageable. Um, workaholism, sex, shopping, you know, wanting more stuff, mm-hmm. exercise, um, anger, emotions, codependency. I mean, all of those things, they can make my life unmanageable. And they so if I don't have something in place to check that, I'll put down the crack pipe and I'll move into a relationship and I'll make my life unmanageable. Mm. Or I'll go and I'll get an extra night job and a weekend job make my life unmanageable. Mm. And for me, pot easily made my life unmanageable really quickly. In college... Um, there would be days when I would wake up and just smoke pot all day and not go to class. And then try to figure out the wreckage of that and try to control how much I used and mm-hmm. try to continue hiding how much I used. And But again, all through college, straight A student, magna cum laude, all the stuff that I felt, you know, mm-hmm. proud of ambitious, obsessive about English. I got really into English. Poetry, found a group of writers, you know, created lots and lots of interesting work. Um, and still, if I would have asked any of them if I party, they would all say no. Even though I found a way to party every weekend and to smoke pot usually a couple times a day sure. at that point. And so that double life really, really was appealing to me at that point. I prided myself on being able to pull it off mm. in sort of a crazy way. It's t- Today I look back and I just think like, oh man, that was so much work. Mm-hmm. All to just not be known by anybody else authentically and to basically yeah. And I'm a bit of an introvert. And so, um, you know, I didn't have this big network of dealers. You know, I relied on one or two friends who would always get it for me. Yeah. And so that kept the, the heavy stuff out of my life. I, I wouldn't have actually known how to get anything more than 
Sure. Mushrooms would come into town on occasion and, and do mushrooms, but really it was just, it was this laid back mm-hmm. affair driven by shyness. Mm-hmm. And then those other um, drivers of addiction binary thinking, you know, mm-hmm. black and white thinking, it's all or nothing, for littles good, it must be better, let's yeah. do this thing, let's see how far we can push this, right. and so, um, you know, but still, my life felt super manageable, even though it wasn't, it still felt manageable, I made it to birthday parties, I made it home for Christmas, I remembered uh, to call my mom once a week, like all those little things that I felt like justified, like, you're handling all your business. You yeah. Can, yep, yep. Yeah. <clears throat> and so that felt, um, it all felt okay to me. Graduated from college, moved to France. I lived there for two years, drank every single night. <laughs> um, every single night. But I would justify it because I was doing stuff. I was translating uh, the work of this poet called Blaise Andrars. And I would just drink and translate poetry. It was awesome. Yeah, you know, sounds like, like a dream game. <laughs> and um, it was. It was. It was. I was doing exactly what I wanted to with my life, and I had no consequences, none. Um, but it was like digging a hole. You know, at a certain point. You dig yourself so deep that you can't get out. Mm-hmm. And that's the consequence. It comes all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And um, I got into some trouble. I, I would travel um, around Europe on my breaks. I was teaching English. I mm-hmm. there also at uh, high school. Um, but it was fun and it was exciting. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, like I said, it was exactly what I wanted to do. What kind of trouble did you get into? What do you mean? Oh, um, I mean, some trouble just health-wise. I overdosed on a painkiller one night in my apartment, and I didn't realize it. Mm. Um, but I blacked out and um, threw up everywhere, and I couldn't move. Um, it was not a fatal overdose, but I mean, it, it put me out for a couple of days. Mm. Was pretty violent. What my body, how my body was reacting, um, and then in Amsterdam, I, I mean, the, the trouble is like the what they would call the euphoric recall in some ways because it's like the the fun adventurous stuff, you know. Like I wanted to go to Europe and I wanted to have adventures and have stories, mm-hmm. and so I mean. There's a time when I was sitting on the canal, you know, really stoned, staring at these ducks, and then I got pushed in, mm. um, and they had to fish me out because it was like a 12-foot fall. Mm-hmm. These, these people in a boat fished me out. And Who pushed you in? A friend or something? No, this these drunk group of guys coming out of a soccer party. Hooligans. Hooligans did it. Um, but really just a, more a lot of having a double life. 
you know, having, you know, meeting a woman and, you know, spending a two crazy intense nights together, like feeling like we were soulmates and then leaving each other forever because she lived in uh, Italy and I was American and like those sorts of things felt like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like this is what the writers of the 1920s were doing. Like I'm living, yeah. you know. But no, it wasn't shared with anybody. It was just me doing it. Right. It was like a life of one-offs, almost. Right. Well, it's almost like getting high in a way because it's so intense as it's happening, and then it it's gone, and you're like, how do I how do I get even higher next time? Yeah. 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 And so then I moved back, and again, more of the same: smoking pot every day, hiding it from everybody. I had my first adult job. Day Center for Adults with Disabilities. Okay. And, um, you know, that felt like, okay, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I've got this job. It's a salary. I've got health insurance. Like, I've arrived. Mm -hmm. And I can still party on weekends and smoke pot. And so it, it, it so at this point, when you say party, do you mean just drinking still? I mean, yeah. You weren't into anything crazier at that point yet? Again, man, it was super tame for a long, long time. What I've, what I've learned, and this is my belief, is that um, pot is a gateway drug mm. um, because it taught me a certain skill set. Mm. How to act like I'm sober when I'm not. How to um, acquire substances, talking to friends, you know, maybe having a dealer to uh, live a bit of a double life. You know, mm -hmm. all those things that then you just take them and it's like you unplug them from pot and boom, put them into cocaine. Sure. Them from, put them into heroin. Put them, like you, th those, are, those are kind of the foundational things that one needs to use. Okay. <laughs> you know, and so I practiced them for 20 years, 10 and 15 years. So you're... You know, early to mid twenties. Now you're home. You got the professional job. How do you start segueing into these harder drugs? Like, what, what, what is the catalyst for this? What's your mindset that you're like, pot and booze is just not enough anymore? So just <clears throat> curiosity, wanting to scale it up, wanting to have adventures, chasing the bigger thing. And so I was, I went to grad school after a few years of working. And while I was out there, uh, a good friend of mine, he, he kind of, be, we spent a lot of time together. We were both writing, we were both passionate about poetry. And a um, good friend of mine, he started to kind of catch on. He's like, you know, you have this one way that you want people to see you, he said one night. But there's this other way that you kind of let slip every once in a while, mm. that maybe you've got something else going on. And I was like, huh. And I realized that I... So, kind of um, mysterious or something. Something, yeah. There's, a, yeah, a mystery. Yeah. Uh, and so, you just weren't boring. You weren't normal. Yeah. There was something mysterious. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. And as a as someone who at the time felt very shy, then it, it would I felt like it would draw people to me as if something was an intrigue mm -hmm. there. I don't know that that ever happened, but I felt like it was possible. Mm -hmm. And but it, but I also. 
because deep down what I know today is I, I fear if anyone ever really knew me, they wouldn't like who I was at all. And so I was better off if they liked a lie. At least they liked something. You know? And I wasn't willing to be vulnerable enough to risk them actually liking what they saw. Like That wasn't really a part of that equation. I never thought, like, oh, if they knew me, they might like me. Right. Where it's it's not in the drug use, it's in the thinking. Mm-hmm. It's how I think. But so <clears throat> I started, um, and 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 I also want to say, to me, like it, it it doesn't matter what an addict has used. An addict is an addict. Mm-hmm. And so when I get into like the harder stuff, like that doesn't make me any more of an addict than I was before. Sure. Same exact same footprint. Okay. Right? So I started using Adderall, mm-hmm. and it took me one time of using Adderall, and I knew that I just had to have it. So mm-hmm. I got a fake prescription for it, um, and a, a ridiculously high prescription for it, just bluffing my way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started using that, and that's really when the shit hit the fan, and it happened in about six months. Mm-hmm. I went from being... <clears throat> very much involved to staying up for six or seven days in a row routinely Jesus. just writing and being kind of crazy in my apartment and um, what do you mean by being crazy oh just like obsessively organizing you know taking things apart I mean super standard kind of amphetamine abuse stuff mm. um, I would go to Goodwill and I would just come out with bags and bags of stuff that like I was going to do a project with. Sure. Like just little, like slightly odd stuff. Um, but then my family noticed and I told them that I had bipolar disorder and they put me on medication for that, which I didn't take. But it let me hide. It let me continue to hide. Um, I managed to make it through my final year of grad school and I could not get my stuff together to have a plan for afterwards. I was terrified. You know, the core of my addiction is fear Mm -hmm. and self-centeredness. And I was terrified and super, super self-centered and I didn't want anybody to know that I was doing drugs. I would rather have them think that I had bipolar disorder that point I was using so much that even with my um, big prescription I would run out about a week before the next one could get filled and so I'd just sleep for a week and try to eat something and once that you know once prescription day came around you know it's like payday yeah then I just started all over again and so it was awful in the end it was awful I was I weigh 200 pounds now, I weighed 160 pounds then, and I could not stop, you know. I would be looking at myself in the mirror, you know, four or five, six days into a binge, and I'd be like, dude, this isn't going to end well, you know, you need to do something, and then I'd turn right around and do some more Adderall, you know, and 
that's when it became super clear, like, okay, I am a classic, <laughs> like, this is an addict. Before, yeah. I wasn't an addict, but this is, right. like, the kind of stuff that addicts do. Um, and so then I didn't know what else to do, so I drove across the country um, to my mom's in Virginia, and she put me in treatment. And that was the first treatment that I was in. And I was there for 90 days. I felt like I got it. I got this thing licked. You know. How old were you? I was 27. Okay. And um, I, I felt connected to community. That's when I realized like addicts are my kind of people. Addicts in recovery are my kind of people. Like this works. Mm. Love it. And it was a 12 step um, based program. Mm-hmm. hearing one of the other um, people that I was in treatment say that they had gone to treatment before and two days after they left they used and I remember thinking like how is that even possible? Right. Like, how do you just waste it? Easy? Yeah. And yeah. And uh, ten days after I left, left treatment. <laughs> yeah, you double digit in. Another prescription at a doctor out there, and I loved that part of it too. I used to scam painkillers too from doctors. That was also a big part of my story that I left out. Um, but I, I loved that doing that. Another adventure, kind of. Another the... adventure. I had a specific outfit that I liked to wear. Um, you know, it was like a sweater vest with a collar shirt and these khakis, and you know, it was like they won't think. Oh, they won't think. Sure. I just loved it. I loved wow. the whole theater of it. And so, again, it's my thinking. Right? I was right. addicted to that, right. doing that. So I got another prescription, you know, panicked, because what they say in my program is that, you know, recovery really screws up your using. <laughs> and it did. You know, I wasn't able to enjoy it like I did before, mm. but once it hit my blood, I also couldn't stop. Right. You know, and they say one is too many and a thousand is never enough. That's definitely the case with me. Mm. And so when I got that prescription, it was, uh, you know, right back into the chaos. And I, I don't even know. Is Adderall like, do you sniff it or is it a pill? or? It's a pill. You okay. can crush it and sniff it. You can shoot it. You can smoke it. But you it as a pill yep yeah yep and um but but also you know i tried to uh, snort it but i i mean i didn't have the ritual yet around the substance in that way i just like what it did you know with pot i would love to like set out my weed back in those days we cleaned it because it had seeds in sure. it uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and um, you know, put the pipe out, and then put like maybe like a, a snack that I was gonna eat or a glass of water, and then I was like, there was a ritual around. Yeah. It. Adderall, not so much. It was just because yeah. Then all the ritual would come when I couldn't, you know, stop straightening things and amphetamines. It's, yeah. <clears throat> but so then. Again, it's like I had I, I felt like I had all this potential that I wasn't using and I felt all this shame and I just went through this big long treatment and so I moved home and that 
geographical fix, you know, I bet I'll be able to stay sober if I'm somewhere else, mm -hmm. you know, and you know, wherever I go, there I am, and I followed me, <coughs> and uh, made it back to the cities, uh, and after about uh, a week, I found out about bath salts, which is the synthetic meth that was available in shops mm -hmm. and it was two years of absolute insane total <laughs> totally degrading chaos um, it was math that I could buy with a credit card mm -hmm. question a person can ask because it wasn't all all terrifying it was um, you know at the beginning of an Adderall binge uh, it was really fun lots of energy super social I couldn't say the wrong thing felt on top of the world and then it would get to the point where like I couldn't think straight anymore and uh, hadn't eaten and maybe I'd been up for you know five or six days and then it's like, okay, I gotta go to sleep. Um, on this other stuff, it was like I lost a, the sense of who I ever was. Mm. Um, it started out fun, energy, uh, top of the world. Um, but then after a while, like, I don't know if it builds up toxicity in the blood or if it's got some component in it that makes you trip. But. After a while, it was like my, my worst fears would play out in my head, and I couldn't tell if they were, had happened or not, if, they, if it was a memory or a fear anymore. Mm -hmm. It was just confused, total confusion. And, that was horrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and what's 
interesting about it. Like I do feel like it was a spiritual experience because it was like I know my worst fears, and my mind was doing this really crazy acrobatic thing where it it would play those fears out in my head with such vivid clarity that it didn't feel like I was creating them. Mm. You know, like you felt like you were remembering them. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Like it was and, Yeah, and, and it felt like, God, I hope this isn't coming from my brain. Wow. You know what I mean? But it's like, well where else would it be coming from? You know? If this is a memory or an imagination, either way it's in your head. I would reach a point where it was just too much, and uh, I'd go to the hospital, go to the psych ward. Mm. And, you know, looking back, I would go there just to get my head on straight again, and then I knew I was going to go right back at it. You know, the, uh, on the ride home, I would be taking oh, yeah. Yeah. figuring out where to get it. And so that's just. It doesn't, again, it doesn't matter to me what a person has done or how crazy it got. What matters is, like, your question. If it was so horrible, why do you keep doing it? Because mm-hmm. I'm an addict, you know? And because there's this part of me that um, is, uh, there's a part of me that is that doesn't feel whole and there's a part of me that wants to die you know um, and there's a part of me that um, is uh, super fearful and resentful um, and then surrounding all of that is total selfish self-centeredness yeah. a total absence of I, uh, if I put down the drugs, that part is still there. Mm-hmm. And so there needs to be something that provides a counterbalance to that. And for me, what that has been is recovery, 12-step recovery. It, it has taught me a new way to live, period. Like, <coughs> it, um, because like I've already said, it, it isn't about drugs. It's about thinking. It's about thoughts. Mm-hmm. It's about wanting to change how I feel. You know, because if someone asks me, you know, what's my drug of choice? It's more. <laughs> Period. Or whatever. You know, like I, 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 in that, in those crazy years on the basalt. I mean, I. Absolutely anything. Yeah, so let's, I want to get into more of the benefit, like the recovery, the positivity of this story. But so segue that into kind of how did you go from bath salts then to crack? I mean, is it just that you're in such a toxic mindset and putting yourself in actual physical spots where it's just such craziness and mayhem that somebody's like, here, you want a small crack? Do you want to shoot heroin? Do you want to whatever? Or you're just, or you keep seeking the next thing? So um, I, I could not get it together. I couldn't pull 
it together. And I, I mean, I, I had achieved a lot in my life externally. You know, like I had, I had done the things that I wanted to do. I, I mean, I, I had the degrees that I wanted. I had the adventures that I wanted. I'd had, you know, some relationships that I wanted. I felt like I crossed a lot off the list. And then there I was, like living in a um, with out a job with a family who is like absolutely baffled and sad and anxious mm-hmm. and confused. So your mom was in Virginia and you were here? Yeah, but my, my dad and my stepmom and all my sisters lived here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just felt like such a loser. I mean, just like such like I had wasted all this potential, I wasted all of these gifts, I wasted everything. Self-centeredness, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's all at that point in my thinking, it was all still about me. And um, you know, so uh, Obama banned all bath salts whatsoever. Took them completely off the market. It didn't matter what it was, if it if it even remotely resembled um, an analog of methamphetamine. And so overnight, they went away, and I was—I panicked. Mm. I just panicked. Like I, I was used to being able to have them whenever I wanted, you know. And I mm. had cashed in a big four hundred one k, and I had cashed in savings bonds. I mean, I, I pawned my computer. Like I figured out ways of keeping the bath salts flowing, mm. you know. Um, I, I, I throughout all this, I, I didn't go into criminal activity. I would steal um, like medication out of people's bathrooms, mm. you know, which mm-hmm. is criminal. Right. But I wasn't robbing people or anything like that. I, I figured out ways of, of um, keeping that off of my out of my you know skill set. It's it's funny how you probably in your mind are like. I still have standards. I'm still I'm still the person I am. I'm not going to cross this line. I'm yeah. not going to cross this line. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and then it's like, well, until I have to. Right. Well, until I have to. And so, you know, crack was just because I couldn't get anything else mm. and I didn't care anymore. And so I just got into my little hatchback. I drove to the the only thing I could think of was to drive to the absolute worst part of town that I could find start asking around. Mm. I mean, look at me. <laughs> right. You know, that was my plan. And so that's what I did. And it took a, a little while. It took a, a day or two. But I eventually, you know, found uh, a connection in North Minneapolis. And then off to the races. I mean, uh, I thought that I'd spent a lot of money on bath salts or a minute of habit with crack. Mm. And, uh, you know, add to that being up all night. That's a lot of minutes. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when I sold absolutely everything that I had. Um, And that's when my family backed away. Mm. Um, And they basically just said, 
watch you die. Right. You know? And that, to me, I mean, despite all of the other stuff, in and out of treatment, in and out of the psych hospital, uh, in and out of ambulances, in and out of cop cars, like, that to me felt like my first consequence. Mm. And um, so I... let the show go on a little bit but realized like I'm gonna I'm gonna die like this you know and I didn't know of a way out and I was sitting in a caribou parking lot still had my phone of course didn't have a I'd gotten kicked out of my last house so I was living in my car in February in Minnesota which is cold as you know I do and I sitting there and I got this email from some friends of mine in Winona, Minnesota and they said basically hey we haven't heard from you in a long time uh, we heard that you were in a rough place if you need a place to stay and you're willing to go to meetings we'll give you a bed and food and I mean like to me in that moment that was it was absolutely shocking and I still can't quite get my head around that you mean that they cared or that the, the timing or I mean it had been years since we'd communicated really? and I'd just gotten kicked out of my place and I knew that I was going to die if I stayed on the street for another 10 days and that email came in and I Right. And so I had one last binge. I drove down there. By the time I got there, I was so kind of wrecked that um, we were watching TV that first night, an episode of Law and Order, and I could not follow the story at all. I could not figure out what the storyline was, and that scared me. Mm. Um, and you know, I couldn't read anymore. Like I, my, I could not link the words together. I could still drive. I could still shower and you know pour cereal. But like some of those things that to me made me human. You know, being able to read and write coherently and to you know hear stories mm -hmm. like this one. Right. Um, that's that's very much what made me feel human, and that was gone. And I was again like when I didn't think I could be any more terrified. I was even more terrified. Well, because I I knew like oh my gosh like there could be more consequences here. Did you think like did I do permanent damage to my brain or something? I I feel I try to feel some gratitude every day like stop and feel the actual gratitude that right. I'm alive the energy of it yeah because um, it is miraculous that I am alive and I, I, and I say that without any melodrama yeah no it's no. like 
when you tell that story, it, it is miraculous. down there and it took me a minute to um, kind of adjust. Um, I was, I had lived this kind of feral life for so long that um, it was just really awkward for me to be among But slowly, I, I kind of came back online and just the bare minimum. You know, they weren't going to let me get away with any bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they're kind of saints in that way. Mm. Um, but they also, you know, knew that they couldn't save me. And so also very enlightened in that sense. But I jumped in and I went to two meetings a day. Nothing else to do, mm -hmm. and for years leading up to it, I didn't do anything of purpose or constructive. Mm -hmm. And so, going to meetings, it was like I, I had no excuse not to. And so, I would drive an hour to um, go to meetings every day. And um, why was there nothing in Winona, or they just lived out so in the sticks? They lived in Houston. I've come to understand about my own addiction and then other addicts that I'm connected to is that we can transform our lives really, really quickly, you know, in both directions. Mm -hmm. um, it can happen overnight to go right back into the insanity of active addiction. And it doesn't happen overnight to get back into recovery. But I mean in, in about thirty days of just a single second to recovery and to listening to what other addicts were sharing and to um, surrendering and learning to live with some gratitude and some love um, after about 30 days I felt this light come on again in my soul you know they talk about spiritual bankruptcy mm. couldn't have been happier in that moment. And every day I continue to be happier and happier. And that was four years ago, you know, and like that to me feels like a miracle upon a miracle upon a miracle. And so what worked for me back then is what works today. And it's, my path has been in 12-step recovery um, because that's where I learned how to think. It's not where I learn how to not do drugs, it's where I learn how to think, period. Like, that has been such an amazing gift. Um, and, and it's 12 step, I mean, I know that's AA, but that just means AA, basically? NA. NA, Narcotics Anonymous, okay. Yeah, and Narcotics Anonymous is, is um, it's just for addicts, you know? Um, alcohol is a drug, that's what they say. 
Yeah. Everyone's welcome. There's food addicts. There's and Narcotics Anonymous, you mean? first second sponsor down there he, he used to say um, you know whenever he sees a, a serial killer get locked up he says there's another one that didn't make it to our meetings that guy's addicted to killing jeez he's kidding but like he's expressing this point of like that's how far it goes mm-hmm. with him like and and it's beautiful because again like the struggles of a shopaholic struggles are the same mm. you know um, it's about unmanageability and thinking and that their channel for it is the amazon.com right <laughs> you know mine was what I just shared um, and so I I just went all in on meetings with the same intensity that I would go at everything else I went into recovery like You know, things weren't perfect, but they were so much better, and things got better uh, and better and better, and I don't take any of the credit for it whatsoever. You know, it was a spiritual awakening, and um, not a religious awakening, but a spiritual awakening. There was some force outside of myself that me do that there was no stopping it <laughs> that's the only way that I can explain it so kind of segueing from the negativity you went all in on getting healthy and sober mm-hmm. I want you to I want you to talk about kind of what you're doing now and how it's made your life better, but I guess a question I have is how important do you think it is for addicts to to help other people, essentially, to get back into to kind of keeping themselves tied to the recovery process rather than... Because some people, I have to assume, do just are able to just say kind of cold turkey or just stop, but it would seem that the intensity would fade when you just walk away essentially yep. and that's such an awesome question because it does go to the heart of what, uh, what my recovery and what a lot of my friends in recovery's recovery is about is um, connecting with others and helping others and that doesn't necessarily mean you know going and volunteering at the food shelf mm-hmm. what, what it has meant for me lately is trying to help and stay clean for one day, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but also living uh, with honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. Mm-hmm. And so for me, figuring out how to give back is um, selfish in a good way because it helps me stay clean mm-hmm. by doing something that helps someone else. Like the... the program is so full of those kinds of contradictions um, where um, you know by helping others I'm helping myself mm-hmm. you know that 
why you keep talking about that, but that's okay. I mean, that's like, um, you know, to have like the heart of a giver. A lot of people don't, you know, they don't want to accept gifts. They don't, and it's like, well, for one person to give you something, you know, to be a giver, you have to be willing to accept. So yeah, it was um, it was uh, a lot of shifts that had to be made, but they all made sense. I never once felt like, what's the point of this? Uh, in terms of you know following what was suggested of me by other addicts who had found recovery. You Tell know, us about that. Like, what do you mean by shifts? Like, just I mean, just I mean, what they say is you only have to change one thing. Go to meetings. They told me to pray and meditate. Um, they told me to start giving a shit about myself. Um, and when I felt like using to give them a call, you know, like I never answered my phone. I still remember the first time I answered my phone. I was clean probably two or three months, and my phone rang. And I was like, ah, uh, and I would get all this anxiety because of all the years of living a lie up and just said hello and now I have answered my phone every single time that it rings mm. since then because that is that is how I recover that is how I make a shift mm -hmm. you know because it's the little things you just kind of do the opposite yeah whatever you were doing before do the opposite now yeah yeah I mean and, and that can be problematic too what, I, what I've been learning is how to live uh, in some areas of my life in the gray in the black or the white, which is that binary thing, but in the gray. Mm -hmm. um, because, again, like I can't stress it enough, anything can make my life unmanageable, even jujitsu. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if I train seven days a week and then I'm getting up in the morning and doing cardio and, you know, going into the bathroom at work and watching MMA fights <laughs> on my phone, right. I mean, like it can get out of control. Sure. Like, and that, how is that any different? You know, right. I'm not going to get arrested for that, but I could lose my job. Yeah. That could damage my heart. Yeah, it could hurt your body. Yeah. Exactly. And so, where were we? Just talking about the importance of helping other people in your own recovery. and. Yeah. And so, I mean, that, that has been really, really important for me. Um, because that's how I got clean. Like, people helped me. You know, I didn't it. I didn't do much. I just showed up and people taught me how to live. Mm. You know, like, and I needed it bad. And, um, and so it, it's a work in progress. You know, I, I still, um, I, I even, I mean, I still work my program today as I did a year ago and a year from there as hard as I did a year from that like it's um, automatic to me to think about things through the lens of my recovery and a big part of that is connecting with other people and showing up in a spirit of service not hoping to get something out of it Instead, to know that if I 
helping this person, I'm stepping out of self, mm-hmm. right, and into the world. Right. Um, and when I do that, I, in some ways I'm accomplishing what I always wanted with drugs but never could, is to change how I'm feeling. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it works. And, I mean, there are days, you know, I don't have bad days anymore. I've never had a bad day in recovery. Mm. You know, I have moments that are difficult in an otherwise good day, you know, and I have some of those moments last for 12 hours of the day, you know, because again, my, I'll get it in my head, um, thinking about something or fearing something or feeling anxious or even feeling excited about something. I'll think about it and think about it and think about it. Whereas before it was like, the thought would just run itself which was to do something, you know, today when I get a, a thought stuck in my head, I know that I've got choices, you know, and, and generally what it is is I share that thought with somebody else, I call up a sponsor or somebody else in the program and I say, hey, here's the thing that I'm thinking about uh, and I want you to know, and then it's gone, you know, like thinking about using using and they'll say, yep, you're a drug addict, you're going to think about using, mm-hmm. you know, and then, I'll, and then I'll feel like, oh, and they'll say, what are you going to do about it? And it's like, well, I don't know. And they'll say, well, do you want to hang out tonight? Uh, nope. You know, well, do you want to go to a meeting? No. And they're like, okay, I'll pick you up for a meeting, you know, later today. That's how, I mean, that's, that, that has gone down a couple times in my recovery and saved my life. But I had to make that call. When you say, I mean, it sounds like the answer to my question is obvious when you explain it that way, but when you call up and you say, I'm thinking about using, do you mean it in the sense of, I'm just thinking about what it was like, or I'm considering driving to North Minneapolis right now? And, right. Okay. Generally, it would be like, I'm considering using sometime soon, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and the recovery kicks in enough to make that phone call. Or, you know, or it could mean in that other sense, like, I'm thinking about using. Like, I'm thinking a lot about the act of using without a plan. But that thought always turns into a plan for me. Right. You know, because then I can begin to justify it as like, well, I haven't done this drug. And I'll, let me Google and see how bad it gets. Oh, you know what I mean? Does that feel pretty dark when that happens? I mean, it's, it's like, it's masquerading as, as curiosity, but it's, it's craziness, you know, like this, um, what did they call it? There was a new drug that hit Florida by storm, it's called Croc or something like that. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. Isn't that the shit that had people like chewing each other's faces off or something? Or was that bad salt? doing because my brain went to look for like ways to minimize it and can you buy it online from China and you know like that's the insanity of it and so then I call someone up and I say hey guess what I'm doing you know and they say "Mm -hmm. I've been there Uh, do you want to do something about it Mm -hmm. you know do you want to have coffee you know go exercise there's just like 
thought of using and the act of using. Mm -hmm. And what recovery does, it strengthens that line, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't have this thought in my head that I will ever like, be recovered. Right. I hope I'm not, because I love recovery right. so much. And it's not just about meeting with this whole constellation of other things, including helping other people, like, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so then where does the energy go, you know? Sure. And, like, I uh, may be obsessive about coaching and about um, personal development, um, but the channels that it goes through um, have kind of um, uh, meaningful ends, you know, like creating a really awesome life plan with somebody um, and getting super, super into that is a better high than any rock I'd ever smoked. And 100, I heard, used to hear people say that and be like, no. Like, creating something that is lasting and that will help somebody help themselves um, is the best high for 100%. Uh, or leading a, a, a group presentation and seeing a team kind of come into this realization together about how they might work together in a way that is more um, productive and more nourishing and life-giving, mm -hmm. and to be witness to that, you know, and to help facilitate that. I mean, to me, that's a high worth chasing, mm -hmm. you know? And then... You know, I can't, like, go and track down another team and be like, oh, we got to do this. Right. You know, there, there's, like, kind of a built-in balance, you know, because then, like, the, the need to secure an, another account um, or to find another group, you know, it, it takes time. Sure. So, like, that, that energy has some place to go, and I feel good about putting that energy into stuff. Right. You know, and so... But it, it, it's like it teaches you moderation because it's like you have to learn to... You, you have to learn to embrace the time that it takes to sort of recover from, you know, and like you said, find a new client or whatever, but so it's what I'm implying sort of... Do you kind of get what I'm saying? Like it teaches you the moderation of rather than... The analogy would be like in my business of selling houses. If I just like, I'm just geeked out. I need to sell a house every single day. Well, of course, that'd be better for my income. And I'm, I'm certain, I mean, maybe it's not quite analogous because that's what you want is to just be doing the most cost productive, you know, effective things or the most productive things. But I guess where I'm going with the thought is that addicts, yeah, whatever it is that you like, it's just. How do I maximize this all the time <laughs> and learning to just enjoy a little bit of calm, you know, just <laughs> embrace it. Just because you were, um, you said a couple minutes ago and it kind of resonated with me that you love recovery. You love talking to addicts. You love helping. And I was kind of thinking of it because like I was never anywhere close to the depths that you were, you know, that wasn't, 
but I still think I have the brain of an addict. And so, okay, quitting drinking, it's almost like, like you've seen Half-Baked, right? The movie, of course, and it's like Bob Saget's like, weed? Ever suck dick for weed? Like, I suck dick for coke, you know, whatever. It's like a joke in the movie, but like, I, to the point that I felt silly even talking about pot as if it's, you know, a thing to be addicted to. And it's more like, I, I feel like physically I could just quit everything cold turkey. That's not an issue for me. You know, food I have to think about. For the most part, 90% eat well. Occasionally you get on a little pasta and sugar bender and it's like, all right, I got to stop this. This is gross. I feel like a pile of shit. <laughs> but, but in general, what I'm getting at is more like, um, I almost felt like in trying to do this podcast and talk to people and stuff that I was this like faker. Like I'm... <clears throat> Like, you're not really a real addict. You've never been, like, in the toilet, you know, like you've never been living in your car and contemplating, you know, how you could be dead in 10 days. So, uh, what, what am I trying to get out? Like, like, people who, like, am I a faker for wanting to stay in the idea of talking to addicts? Like, before I even started doing this, I was thinking about it, like, people that have, like, you, you'll meet people that have never smoked a cigarette. They've never smoked pot, whatever, maybe they're called successful, I don't know, but part of what I'm thinking is it's like, um, like Rogan talks about how all the good comics he knows came from these fucked up backgrounds, you know, bad childhood, like adversity, trauma, whatever, but that's what made them interesting, thoughtful people, and then you, you get good at something and you, you know, oftentimes in our system, if you get good at something, you can earn a good living doing it, and then that allows you to provide a pretty mundane, boring childhood for your kids, <laughs> and all you want is for them to be interesting, or, you know, not interesting, it's not like you hope that your kids are interesting, but I want, I'm trying to raise thoughtful, empathetic people that are grateful for what they have, not materialistic, not, uh, you know, that just value the right things, so you try and provide this very cushy lifestyle. And then the pendulum will swing back the other way, but hopefully they're not like, hey, my childhood was so boring that I got to start, you know, smoking crack to get a little spice in my life or something. But I guess where I was going with the thought was really like, am I this faker, like, that I, I enjoy talking to people that have been through adversity much more. I think they have a better basis to make decisions from. They have more experience. It's like... Society expects, you know, like, if you if somebody's running in politics and they don't have a bunch of skeletons or whatever, I'm like, we're just waiting for this guy to either snap or the skeletons to come out because he's got something, right? We're humans. We all have this. So, you know, I kind of joke, my brother-in-law, you know, this is his parents' house. Um, he, he just wants, like, he thinks me and his cousin-in-law now should get into politics and what are you even talking about? But basically saying, like, if I ever did, I'd get up to the mic and, you know, tap, 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 is this thing on? I'm Dan. Uh, I used to drive drunk all the time. I don't anymore. Uh, I've done all the major drugs except, you know, I've done coke, I've done ecstasy, I've done acid, I've done mushrooms. I did them all a few times and kind of stopped because I remember the first time I sniffed cocaine, I was like, I want to feel like this all the time. So I better not do this anymore, you know. And it was like, wow, that was 50 bucks, and it's gone like that. All right, we're going to just not do that. 
but like, you know, admitting to people like, here's everything you're going to find. I've never fucked around <laughs> in my wife. I, I have dignity in that way. But, uh, you know, what do you got? Yep. You know, and if somebody's going to go up against me and pretend to be the perfect <laughs> person, it's like, this is, that's a lie. You're a liar. You have something. So I guess, you know, I'm kind of just going on this little rant, but it's more like when you say you love recovery, it makes me think like I love the idea of talking to people like you and like just learning more from it and and seeing these people that have all this background that allows them to genuinely help someone else. Because I don't know anything more than anyone else, but I guess I'm sort of at a spot in my life where what I think about for contentment is just like there's not one thing I could buy that's going to change my life anymore. There's not, um, you know, I have plenty of professional ambition, but like I don't feel like I need to make a zillion dollars or something. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I want to be very successful professionally and continue to live with, you know, maintain a lifestyle that I have, but, but it's more like what is what is going to contribute to actual happiness <clears throat> and seeing other people achieve peace or their happiness or whatever their dream might be. You know, it just, I don't know. This is certainly the thing that has grabbed my, my curiosity and my interest. And I'm trying to kind of take it and run with it, I guess. Well, and <clears throat> what, what I can observe is doesn't matter um, it doesn't matter how far down the road we travel like you say like if we have the wiring we have the wiring and to want to know more about that wiring to me is a noble pursuit mm-hmm. you know like and, and, and again a thing that I've learned is that I can learn from other people's successes and honor them in that and not feel threatened or jealous. Totally honor someone else's success. And I can learn from another person's mistakes without having to make those mistakes myself. Right. And to explore this uh, part of human psychology and human spirituality with an open mind, like it sounds like you have, I mean, Doctors, doctors who treat addiction aren't necessarily addicts. You know what I mean? Right. And they, they come at it from a different lens, but like the, I can also see... But to your point, I almost feel like I trust an addict telling me how to get clean more than an academic. 100%. That's why meetings work. You know? Mm-hmm. The, exactly. Who, who do you talk to? Somebody who draws maps or someone who's actually been on the true terrain. Right. You know, even though the person who drives maps might have a bigger house and be able to talk with all the right words about the geographical features, the guy who's been there is the one that I would go to for sure. Right. You know, that mountain range or that forest. Mm-hmm. And so, to your point, yeah, like, that's, no one's shy about that. In my life, who's in recovery, we need each other. I need Right. And um, it's, it's that community that I've 
always wanted, feeling mm-hmm. like I belong So that's what you're doing now. You're helping people. I mean, you're still you're you work on yourself in NA, and you help other people work on themselves through your your work life now, right? Yep. And so I'm able to take the principles of twelve step recovery and kind of change the words around a little bit, but use them to help people make lasting change in their lives. You know, because a good friend of mine not an addict said I was talking to her about my program and she's like oh man I want to be in NA <laughs> you know yeah and she's like there should be 12 steps for everyone I should teach this in schools and I've heard that over and over again like no 12 steps should be taught in schools sure and I agree like it, it, it works for anyone because it's just they're just spiritual principles to live by you right. know and it's teach like you said, it's teaching you a way to think. Exactly. And that way of thinking just happens to have really scientifically consistent results when applied in a specific way. I mean, you, I've never met somebody with a healthy program who isn't happy. Right. You know? I've met plenty of people with a certain income who aren't happy. Some right. who are. I met people, I mean, yeah. but, but this, to me, that some of the stuff doesn't make any sense in the way that the world is supposed to make sense, but it has so much meaning. Say that again. So, the question that I ask myself sometimes is, can something not make sense but still have meaning? And my experience says, oh yeah, yeah. Can something make sense and not have meaning? The other way around? Yeah, you know, I can say a ridiculous sentence, you know, the, uh, this cup is blue, it makes sense, but is it meaningful, does it, does it describe reality? Not at all. Right. So the flip side of that is, to me, what the spiritual world is about. It doesn't have to make sense in order to mean something. Right. I, I hear you, that's sort of like a, a friend of mine, we were, it wasn't a debate, but we were just talking sort of casually about, you know, you're thinking about some of the big ideas or the big you know, meaning of things. And I think he quoted like a Miley Cyrus line or something, but it was like, doesn't really matter where you get your guidance or your lessons as long as it change, you know, it, it's impactful for you or it guides the way you live, you know. I love that. Yeah, it's just... Well, it makes me think, I was talking to someone today, I was talking about how happy I felt in that moment. And it's like all moments connect to all other moments in my life. And everything I've ever been through, even the scrape me as a kid and the, you know, my first kiss and my tenth kiss and whatever, all the stuff and then all the insanity of active addiction have added up to create this moment mm-hmm. right now. Right. And, um, you know, there's some philosophers that I've they say, like, if you don't have this moment, like, what else is there? And it's like, oh, like, 
I've been part of my path right now is like this exploring like with a lot of clarity like what does it mean to be present right here and now you know and and, and what would it be like to feel absolutely connected to this moment you know and it's hard like it's, it's a difficult thing to get my head around because mm-hmm. attached to that are all sorts of other questions like what are we doing here right right <laughs> like, what's going on what is the meaning of Is time, I know until you ask me. And I think presence is like that too. Um, we can be really, really present. And then as soon as we think, like, oh man, I'm really present. Yeah, that it, it's fleeting, it's just gone. Yeah. yeah. Well, with that said, I want to be respectful of your time. It's, cool. you know, six o'clock. And yeah, man, I'm really glad you shared that. Yeah. Interesting to tell a sort of chronology at this point in my recovery, um, as opposed to even two years ago. Um, and it's and it's and it was common for me to really obsess about the details of the story, the drunkologue, as they call it in AA. Okay. Um, but I, I was grateful. that's at the core of what these conversations mean. I mean, like I started out saying an addict is an addict is an addict. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I've been fortunate enough to know people from all over the spectrum, including somebody who used to drink one day a week, and they were full-blown alcoholic, but they would drink one day a week. And they, they started going to meetings because their whole week revolved around that. Yeah. It was Saturday night. Yep. And everything they did. And so, again, it has like totally broadened my perspective about what this thing can look like. Yeah. And in that, it trickles into everything, you know, including my work. It's like I try really um, hard to keep a super open mind about the people that I interact with and the people that I meet and to think about their story and to think about how each of us has our own little universe inside of us with all of this all of these memories and emotions and dreams and fears and experiences you know and really the foundation of the work that I do today as a coach is you know what's your mindset what's your perspective because my experience has been what I focus on I find Mm -hmm. people thanks so much for listening Uh, I really really enjoyed that chat with my friend and I hope you found something of value in there
please feel free to share this podcast or any of the previous podcasts or any future podcasts with um, anyone you think might find something in there. I've, um, this thing's this journey for me is pretty pretty early. We're pretty young in it, um, but I've just been amazed already. Uh, just in a few podcasts. Uh, reaching out to people about other things, totally unrelated things, and maybe Facebook friends or whatever, and we're talking about something, and they say, hey, what are you, you know, what are you, are you doing? Are you doing a blog, or what, is, what exactly are you up to? And people that I had no idea had any kind of addiction or recovery or anything like that in their past, or, um, you know, and they start asking questions. So it seems like maybe it's kind of a taboo subject or, or something that people are, maybe have on the mind and you know certainly people think about their health and, and their behavior and their choices so um, I guess that's sort of some motivation for me that you know, I certainly don't know what I'm doing but um, if there's if there's any benefit to anyone else that's kind of an exciting an exciting thing so anyways um, thanks so much for listening and please share away and let me know what you think thanks so much